to the Scottish Built and Bike Gathering 2020. Um, I'm Graham McLean. I'm the head of developing mountain biking in Scotland. Um, this session here, um, we're going to be exploring and, and just generally discussing um, where we are with mountain biking in, in terms of probably our, our more experienced mountain bikers, people who have been into the sport for many years um, and are looking to have been getting out, going further, going wilder, going more. Um, we now have e-bikes as well coming in as well, which is going to enable more people to go further, to go bigger and to go further into our, our wilderness and explore our wider countryside more. We want to open this up as a discussion, though. We're wondering, is there going to be issues with this in the future? Do we have a strong set of ethics running through our sport that we, that, that we have already? Do we need to develop that further? Do we need to have people come into our sport, understand how to behave and look to create a, a way of... Um, <clears throat> a set of ethics for us as a mountain bike community, which then instills back that people who enter a sport understand um, and how we do. We're looking just to explore this today with some really esteemed guests. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce those guests um, and, and if they can give them just themselves a, a, bit of their, um, a bit of their own knowledge and background and where they come from um, on this particularly interesting subject. Um, I'm going to go... Um, to my right of my screen, um, I'm going to start with Andy McKenna from Gower, Scotland. Andy, how are you today? I was better until you decided to pick on me first, and I was hoping I would get to see how this whole shebang works before I, I dived in, but I am great. Let's go for it. Good. Aye. Do you want to give yourself, just give us a little bit of your back, uh, who you are and where you come from? Okay. Um, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for the invitation and hello everyone. Um, I've got a chronic memory, so I'm going to be glancing over at some notes just to remind me who I am and what I do. Um, a quick snapshot, I suppose. Um, I've been in and around mountain biking um, since the 80s, actually. And in 2008, that took, a, took an evolution. I turned it into my business and uh, I started Go Wear Scotland. Uh, mountain bike guiding and holiday experience business and more recently with a real focus on projects around uh, diversity, well-being and inclusion. Um, uh, so we, we work with people from all over the world um, and share our passion for Scotland. Um, uh, I suppose in the beginning when I got into mountain biking in the 80s there wasn't really any kind of ethical philosophy or I didn't really give a toss about ethics. I just loved the buzz and the adrenaline of these death traps called mountain bikes that they were palming off on us. They were just big, big wheel BMXs. I mean, it was it was all about the adrenaline for me. Um, just as I think every man and woman that gets into mountain biking, they should 100% experience that. But I suppose the, the longer I, I did this thing, the more I travelled abroad and uh, making a business out of it, um, over a decade ago, watching the sport grow and evolve and expand into the mainstream, um, I think that's really rammed importance home to me, the need for conversations like today's um, and, and action that will hopefully stem from it and it'll not just be another talking shop. Um, and I suppose for me, um, how we manage all the development sustainably just plays a massive, you know, it, it, it tugs on me personally and, and, and as, a, as, a, as a businessman, how to balance the, the, the ethics um, and profit, I suppose. Um, in terms of, you know, our work, 
trail advocacy is massively important. Uh, my wife, partner, business partner, she's on the board of the TVTA and puts about 150 hours voluntarily into that every year. Uh, our guides, our team, they're all champions of um, you know, trail maintenance um, on tour um, or in their local area. Um, and we also see real value in our community relationships, our liaison role with all the areas and businesses we work with. We've been riding around Scotland for 30 plus years, so you build up a lot of friendships and they, they stick with the business as that has evolved. We've got a financial commitment to, to trail advocacy, a percentage of our, our uh, turnover goes into at least two environmental or tra trail advocacy organisations each year. We're big on encouraging uh, public transport use amongst our clientele. Um, I've probably said plenty, really. I, I'm going to shut up for a bit. No, that, that's a great introduction, Andy, and it's great to have you on the panel. Um, Bridget, do you want to, could you just come into yourself, just from you, a bit of introduction to Nature Scott and also your role within Nature Scott? Yeah, sure. Um, afternoon, everybody. Yeah, my name's um, Bridget Jones. I work for Nature Scott, formerly known as Scottish Natural Heritage. Um, just rebranded there in the in the summer. Um, my my role with Nature Scott is I'm strategic paths and projects manager. So um, I've got a main focus on um, delivering improvements to the paths and access network, mostly at a kind of strategic level, so sort of longer distance routes. Um, got a particular focus on on Scotland's great trails, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, like Andy, um, I seem to have been around for quite a while as well, and uh, definitely 30 years plus, which is very, very scary. Um, and seen access and recreation um, change over the, over those uh, those decades um, in terms of accessibility to the outdoors um, and recreational opportunities as well. Um, in particular, um, involved in the access legislation appearing and being implemented. Um, I worked with a local in Trossachs National Park um, when it was established, and again, sort of another mechanism for getting people into the outdoors. And I think our, you know, our role as um, sort of the public sector, which is where I've largely worked, um, has been in encouraging people into the outdoors, getting all the benefits from it. Um, encouraging responsible, respectful um, behaviour whilst out there enjoying things, protecting the environment, um, but also looking at all the sort of knock-on benefits that that brings in terms of health and well-being, um, economic benefit through tourism and business development, um, and of course working with very much um, local communities and in partnership to you know, do things together collaboratively um, and hopefully um, you know, reap the benefits quite widely um, in terms of SGT, Scotland's Great Trails, has been a particular focus for us um, of late. Um, we are doing a bit of a review in, in terms of that. Um, many of those routes um, you'll be familiar with, West Highland Ways, um, Great Glen Wave, some of the smaller routes in there, Aran Coastal Path, Cataran Trail and so on. They were mainly designed around walking opportunities. That seemed to be the thing um, back in the 80s. It was long-distance walking routes, but with the advent of legislation broadening opportunities for anybody in sort of non-motorised activity, including getting out on mountain bikes, um, horse riding, whatever, um, it's meant that, you know, that kind of demand, that opportunity to get people into the outdoors has 
opened up, broadened out. Um, we're currently doing a bit of an internal review of what the SGTs look like, um, and what's changed over the last 10 years or so, what the opportunities are in the future. Um, and you know, what's of particular relevance, I think, for this, this conversation is around about um, the development in sort of gravel biking, potential for multi-day routes, um, encouraging more entry-level um, biking opportunities, really keen on that connecting people with the outdoors and nature. Um, and of course, e-bikes and e-bike e development and what that opens up in terms of opportunities. Um, but also there's some you know, potential impact and things to manage in there as well. So um, the ethics associated with that recreational enjoyment um, and getting people out there are key and you know, our primary role um, as the, the govern, government advisory agency is in terms of the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. Um, and as I said at the beginning, encouraging people to get out there, but to do so responsibly. Thanks so much, Bridget. And uh, Tommy, can you give us a bit about your background um, as well? Yeah, well, um, I certainly feel like uh, I've not been around as, as everyone else because I first started riding in the 90s. Um, and, and at that point, I think it was still a, a niche sport. And um, I think at that point, we had a culture much closer to BMX rather than to skiing, which I think is where we're going now. And I sort of always joke that I was brought up on a diet of dirt magazine for breakfast and repair and square taper cranks for, for dinner. Um, anybody who used to do a jump with those. Yeah. But, you know, my, my viewpoints have changed over the, the last 20 years. Um, I've seen the growth of the sport. Um, I've started moving out of um, racing downhill and being in trail centers to moving into wilder areas. Um, and I'm quite keen to explore how mountain biking can play a role to have economic benefits, social inclusion, whether there's a way we can actually benefit the environment. Um, and one thing that my business increasingly does is, um, is work with um, interagencies such as the Environment Agency, the National Park, see how we can develop um, sustainable mountain biking solutions in wild areas, primarily in England rather than Scotland, where I know we have a, a different set of laws governing that. Um, and, and yeah, that's kind of my, my main interest is where I'm at now. That's great. Thanks, Tommy. And uh, great, Davey, great to have you here as well. Can you a bit of a, a, a background to yourself, um, uh, Mountaineer in Scotland and, and your role within it? Uh, sure, thank you. Uh, I'm David Black. I'm the Access and Conservation Officer for Mountaineering Scotland. Um, I have been around for a bit as well. I keep saying to folk, yeah, I've been in this business 20 years, but I finally realised I've been saying that for a good number of years now, so <laughs> it's more than that. Um, I've been involved in uh, campaigning for outdoor access. Uh, I've been a, I'm, By training, I'm an ecologist, wildlife conservationist, surveyors and all that sort of things. I just love being out in the outdoors. It's, uh, hill walking is my thing. I'm not, I can't say I'm a biker. I'm a hill walker, but probably better described as a Stravager. Show me a path and I'll walk off it and find somewhere more interesting to go. That's where I come from in my background. But uh, for Mountaineer in Scotland, uh, we've got a sort of ethics, it's the ethics of outdoor recreation and environmental protection. Um, we've got nearly 15,000 members in Mountaineer in Scotland. We're established 50 years ago this year, so we're celebrating our 50th birthday. Um, 50 years ago by the Association of Scottish Climbing Clubs, so we're, we're very much led by volunteers, with the clubs being an essential part of that, and we encourage the participation and the sort of progression in mountaineering activities, that's voting safety and skills, and campaigning to safeguard the access rights and responsibilities, all in Scotland's up in the environment. 
our ethos uh, within Mountain Scotland is self-reliance and self-regulation, really. So our work involves the encouragement of safe practice in the hills and crags. And it's by helping people be safe on the mountains, not making the mountains safe for people. I think that's an important point to make. It's getting that uh, the mental attitude that you're in this wild environment and you need to look after yourself. So that's the self-reliance side of things in there. So the naturalness and the wild qualities of the hill country is important to us. And we try to promote the understanding of the mountain environment and foster the awareness of the, the impacts of our activities as well as personal safety. Very strong in protecting the rights of access to the uplands and just as strong in encouraging the responsible behaviour that comes with those rights set out in the outdoor access code, really. We like to campaign on the conservation of the mountain environment and we've got a conservation strategy uh, that guides our view of landscape and wildlife and how people interact with that because people are important. It's not just that the environment's out there by itself. We are part of it and we interact with it and we can, we can change it. And I think it's important to say we're not anti-development in the uplands. It's more a question of how things are done and if they work with the green of nature and support natural solutions to the climate and biodiversity crisis. We also engage with outdoor recreational activities. And I said, I'm a, I'm a walker myself, but there's people are not singular in their pursuits, but they engage in a range of activities. We had a, a member survey recently, and it showed that about 30% of the respondents to that survey regularly cycled both road and mountain biking, and around another 10% go kayaking. So we don't live in silos of walkers, bikers, or whatever. Everybody does a wee bit of something else. So I think that's quite an important uh, point to sort of pick up on. So we're part of a community of interest in outdoor recreation as a whole. A diverse community, and not all are members of our organisation, but we all have an impact on shared space. And it's how you communicate, how we communicate with the people who are not necessarily picking up through our membership, what's going on. Um, regarding uh, outdoor recreational matters, a big one for us, especially with respect to landowners, is erosion of upland routes to summits. It can be difficult to get public funding to maintain and repair these uh, sections of routes suffering from the cumulative impact of footfall over years. The funds are available for, available for access, but the criteria to access these funds are more suited to the path of construction in lowland areas. So maintaining drainage to prevent erosion and repairing popular routes to protect the plants and soil, more in the sphere of environmental protection than in encouraging public access, I would think. Um, I think that uh, there's more people going hill walking now than there was in the past. Certainly Monroe bagging and Corbett bagging has gained in popularity. I'm not a bagger myself. The thing I like to collect is the sources of rivers rather than kicking the cairns. You can find some fantastic places if you just follow burns right up to the very tops in there. So it's when you go and you pick it up in the Monroe bagging and such like, it tends to be associated with a focus on a particular street of hill paths. So you're getting lots of people going over the same ground over and over again in there. And uh, I think uh, Scottish Outdoor Access Code, it's 15 years old this year. And uh, there's a survey done, people in Scotland, uh, people in nature survey. And it's, it was under 50% of the people surveyed in that survey had an awareness of the Outdoor Access Code. That, but that is knowing that it exists. Understanding can be a different matter. And I think the search for local recreational opportunities this summer after the COVID-19 lockdown has demonstrated that we still have a fair bit of understanding of responsible behaviour to encourage. So I'm looking forward to a, a discussion here to try and tease out the strands of where the sort of uh, shared use and how we can actually sort of uh, minimise our impact uh, can come from. Thank you. 
Yeah, I guess that's, that's quite a useful place to start as well. And I'm going to start with, with Tommy and Andy and they can fight amongst themselves who goes first. But um, just from their perspective, just just what do you think that the, the where are we currently with mountain bikers understanding um, of some of those kind of how to access some of our wilder environments uh, in a sustainable way? Where are we currently? And, and is, there, is there a sort of ethical thought or process going through our minds as, as we're doing that? And, and uh, where do you think we are currently with that? So Tommy or Andy? Tommy first, actually, because Andy spoke first last time and he gave me stick for it. Yeah, well, one thing I would, I would like to raise is, um, is a bit of background on this is that I think over the, the last few years, we've seen a, a big expansion, people seeking wilder spaces. But I also think we've had a generation of riders who've been brought up in quite a controlled and free to use and maintained environment of trail centers. Um, and that's a completely different riding experience to being on a mountain plateau. And I, and I think somehow we've lost a little bit of disconnect between transitioning from the trail center into these wilder environments and how we have to adjust our riding and how we respect these environments. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's the fault of the riders necessarily. Um, and I think it's important that we make the most of the Land Reform Act 2003, but I also think we need to um, uh, build, imbue a culture of how we behave in, in these mountain environments, because I don't think there's bad intention. Um, I just think there's possibly a little bit of lack of education there and a higher cumulative effect of more people seeking to do it now. I think I think Tommy's hit the the nail on the head, but there's 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 also the the aspect of uh, the entry level. I, I'm I'm going to sound again like a right old codger, but in the '80s we were just crash test dummies for some really brutal uh, products that were hitting the market. Now. For a mountain biker in 2020 to, you know, their first foray into the sport, the bikes, the clothing, the componentry, the technological advances, the, the digital technology in terms of accessing information about where to, to ride, um, it's, it's phenomenal, but it's, it's created a culture and an appetite. It's, it's created a new, a new norm. You know, my entry point was... If I didn't drown in a bog, I'd have a good day out on a bike. You know, that is not, that's not the expectation currently. And I completely agree with that technology's advances. And in terms of how we interact with that, Andy, what, what are you seeing? You know, you, you obviously, you and your guides uh, spend a lot of time out in the hills in Scotland. What, how, how do you see people, and mountain bikers in particular, kind of interacting with those wild places? Is it mostly in a respectful way? Is it is there pockets of kind of, not bad behaviour, but is there pockets of where we could do better as well? Mountain biking, uh, great question, Graham. Mountain biking's... Uh... It's just a microcosm of humanity, isn't it? So there's uh, there's lots and lots of phenomenal people and there, there's some idiots. So it doesn't matter whether it's uh, mountain bikes, skis, uh, a horse, walking boots. Um, you're going to have some folk that, um, you know, they could be problematic. It, it might not just be a, a, a kind of nature aspect. They, they might simply not know, you know, I think, I think we've got a great opportunity not to educate because that sounds so pious, but we can help nudge people in so many great directions in terms of how they interact uh, with the environment. And as a, as a tour operator, our, our guides 
um, they, they take pride in the fact that, you know, we can write phenomenal locations, um, but we, we can help them understand about why these environments are, are what they are and they're fragile and we want to preserve them. Um, so, so we've got a great opportunity to help steer people, but, you know, tour operators are only a tiny, tiny um, drop in the ocean. We need as a, as a mountain biking community or folk that do know the score um, to find ways of working together and getting the message out. Uh, Davy as well, I mean, I, I think you're, you're completely right in your introduction is that we, we've got a little bit of a danger of thinking of ourselves as mountaineers, mountain bikers, like that, and we put everybody in silos, and people are a lot more mixed and fluid and will interact with different sports at different times, for sure. But I, I guess, I mean, are, are we, I think we're now also seeing, um, looking at sort of statistics that I've seen coming through with double the numbers that, that we normally have on the likes of Loth Lomond. Um, I, I think we're definitely seeing at trail centres and in other Spaces a lot more mountain bikers up, and, and do you see or do you foresee any kind of issues of the of groups clashing and, and sometimes environments where we've never really had that before? That's a good question. Yeah, I think it's the, the sheer use of hill paths is a, a new area for us all, for for bikers and for walkers. Most folk are tolerant and respectful of each other, to be honest. Um, I think some people dislike fast bikes and narrow hill paths because they're not used to. It. It's something you don't see very often. For years, uh, it's mostly been walkers, uh, bikes and horses or something you get lower down when you up onto the higher tops. It's mostly just walkers that you'll see up there. With the advances in technology, as, a, as has been said there, I mean, you can go much further with a bike now than you could do in the past. And people are doing that. And I think it's the, it's the, that novelty effect, like, oh my gosh, what are they doing here? They're moving in a different way as well. It's... Uh, there's a skill and expertise in, in riding the bike, but there's also an expectation in the people uh, in the hill too. And one of the things I think we look at is it's the cumulative impact of these of these things. It's not just uh, one person and you, and you can actually minimize your impact and you're fine. But if you're doing it again and again, and that's something that people come across, there's more and more people come across in here. Um, it's how you negotiate those spaces. I do think the Scottish Outdoor Access Code needs to have a look at this, because if you look at cycling and people, uh, the Outdoor Access Code says if a cyclist meets a walker, uh, then the cyclist should dismount on a narrow path. The cyclist should dismount and walk past them. That's just not going to happen on a hill path. There's just no way you're going to manage that. So I think there has to be a bit of a discussion of how we negotiate use uh, multi-use of these narrow paths uh, in the future. So this is it's an ideal opportunity to discuss these sort of things and actually find how do we work these sort of things? How do we get that mindset to say, I'm not in a plantation here on a, on a really fast track. I'm actually on a, a sheer juice path. Therefore, I need to change my mental attitude to how I ride the bike. But also walkers need to say and accept the fact that, yeah, bikes are up here as well. So I need to be aware that I might, may come here they may not be able to stop in time, so I should be able to try and deal with the situation that comes. So it's a learning experience for all the people, I think, on these hill paths. And Bridget, does that feedback? Oh, um, no, that, that seems better now. I was getting a wave of feedback into there. But um, yeah, Bridget, does that echo your experiences as well and things as well? And um, I guess relation to the access code, you know, 15 years old, things have moved a long way in mountain biking in the last 15 years um, and, and things as well. Is, is there a need for us to look at that at all as well, I think, or, or consider yeah, things? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, the main principles of the code still stand strong. I think there's that kind of, you know, respect for other users and, you know, caring for the environment and, and, and so on. So I think, you know, the basic principles are there. I think inevitably there's, there's elements of the, of the detail that could be kind of um, updated. I, I think that's probably more in, you know, supplementary or tailored advice that, um, that, that works for your, your audience. So uh, you know, I think as was pointed out, um, if we've got an audience of either new to the, the sport or new to the recreation, um, particularly as you know, I believe that um, you know, bike sales are up, um, as you were saying earlier, centres are experiencing increased levels of, of use, which is great, great to hear. So I think we've probably got an audience there um, that maybe haven't heard the messages before and we could have to do a bit more sort of tailoring of those. Um, and then there's possibly those that are sort of transitioning from centre-based um, biking to being in sort of wilder areas. And again, probably on, in most cases are receptive to um, you know, some, some guidance, some, some advice on just maybe some common sense um, actions they can do to sort of help minimize impacts and so on. So I think um, we're in a good place in, in that respect. Um, I think, though, well, Davy's point about, you know, bikes getting into, you know, further, going further, um, certainly with your know, e-bike potential, you can get that bit further. And um, those are out walking on the hill aren't necessarily used to seeing the bikes out there, what, what might have been a novelty you know, over the last decade or two decades or so might now become more of a, a, a regular occurrence. Um, and it's just getting, it's getting people used to that. And in Scotland, it is very much about respecting each other and, and shared use, it's shared use, not one trumping the other at all. Um, and I think that in biking, there's, there's always a little bit of a risk because it's a big lump of metal, it's a bike and it's got, you know, the wheels turn round and they make marks and so on. And you can very quickly be um, you know, accused of being in the wrong place. You shouldn't be here causing too much damage. When in fact, the reality is that you know, most of our upland path erosion has been caused by, you know, caused by feet and footwear over the decades. So, you know, it's, there's room for everybody. It's just being sort of respectful of each other's right to be there um, and you know, using opportunities to encourage how you can do that responsibly and you know, get out there and enjoy Scotland's fantastic countryside and nature. On mute. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I guess kind of relating into that as well, I just wondered as well if, if kind of Andy and Tommy think as well, is there, is there places that, that you think that we shouldn't be going on bikes? Is there, is there spaces into that that, 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 we, that we need to be kind of more mindful of? And, and that might not be a, um, that might be more nuanced than, than an absolute no, like we shouldn't be going there, there, it might be we shouldn't be going there at this time of year, we shouldn't be going there on this day, it could be in this type of weather and these type of ground conditions. I'd allow that level of nuance to come into to your answer as well, because I think my view is it probably needs that, but I'd like to hear your views on that as well, Andy and Tommy. Tommy, uh, no, who's first last time? I'll go Andy first this time again. So, and Andy. Graham, you've, you've pretty much answered the question at the same time. You've, you've, you've basically saved me a, a breath, but the, 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 the reality is that I, I don't think that we're anywhere near a situation where we can start, you know, uh, stopping people from going to any, any one location. But wouldn't it be incredible if we could evolve a culture almost like a, 
a, a, a natural trail amnesty, the infrastructure such, the footprint is big enough that when the, the trail amnesty kicks in and we say, look, this needs three, four months to regenerate, everybody leave off X, Y, and Z, locations, destinations, trail centers, whatever, are, are, are there and, and right for the, for the enjoying. Um, and if we had some level of monitoring and a, a, a large enough, you know, infrastructure to move people about and share the load. But, you know, I, I, I'm all up for everything from mandatory trail maintenance conscription, you know. Um, I, I think that the, the pace, the pace of change and the, the groundswell, um, literally the, the, the landscape in certain environments can't manage, can't absorb the, the, the traffic. And we need, to, we need to figure out a way of spreading the load and maintaining the infrastructure that we have whilst building the resource, the capacity. And Tommy, do you want to come in and any other thoughts there as well? Andy's given a good answer right enough. It's a far one to follow up. Yeah, I think Andy's Andy's pretty much much nailed it. Um, but but one thing I do think um, we do have some trail amnesties, uh, which is a new phrase to me, down down here in Northumberland, and that might be because of uh, ground nesting birds, or it might be sensitive habitat, or or where, wherever. And um, but one thing that we really lack is that um, the communication on that I think has to come from the community itself. That can occasionally be top down heavy. And the way it's portrayed is often you can't ride here and there's there's no um, significant reasoning for that. And of course, then you get attention because people go and ride there anyway, um, because, you know, they don't understand that a curlew might be fledging or whatever. And they might not even be interested. So it, it's kind of building that culture of responsibility and, and peer from your peer group as well. So actually, you know, if we work together, we and we do this, actually, it might help us get access to build another trail because we've shown that responsible to have that amnesty. So it's kind of taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture for me um, into how we get access and becoming a user group that is actually an asset to land managers and to nature um, rather than through kind of blissful ignorance, occasionally a, a hindrance. Um, and, but I don't think that falls always at mountain bikers doors. I think that's lack of collaboration between land managers, landowners and mountain biking groups. Yeah, Davey, in you come. Yeah, I was going to bring you in. Yeah, uh, that's a, it's a good point that you've, you've both raised there. Um, that's that's the self-regulation aspect, which I'd mentioned earlier, kicking in. We've got a similar sort of situation arising um, with climbing and nesting birds, especially, especially protected birds, peregrines, golden eagles and such like. There's plenty of climbing crags in Scotland, but in some cases, at some times of years, Sometimes of the year, you'll find that climbing routes tend to be the favoured spot of a protected uh, bird of prey sitting in there. And of course, they're protected by law. And it's to, it's to keep the, the birds safe and also to keep the climbers safe that we uh, engage in sort of voluntary restrictions on certain crags and certain routes in the crags. We've got a, a system of alerts on our website in which we have noticed of where most of these crags are, where, where the birds habitually uh, nest. Uh, on particular routes. And we try to show, uh, ask for voluntary restrictions there. So it has to be proportionate, I think, for, for, for climbers to buy into it. So it has to be uh, time limited. When are we actually 
prospecting to nesting there, starting nesting, saving <coughs> the eggs from getting cold, saving the fledglings from the, uh, getting cold as well if you scare off the adults. So you're looking at a voluntary restriction from say March through to the end of July on certain crags. And it's not just even on the whole crag. Sometimes the peregrines especially, uh, they can tolerate a bit of disturbance. And if they're in say the west end of the crag and you've got roots in the east end of the crag and there's a buttress in the middle, you can climb on that east side okay. So it's not as if there's a blanket sort of prohibition on these sort of things. It's, it's proportionate to the impact of the activity on the sensitivity of the, the bird itself. So I get updates from the raptor monitoring groups to say what's happening where. I've got a system alerts, I've got a traffic light system where sort of be aware there's birds prospecting around the area, putting an amber alert up in there. Oh, they're nesting now, it's red. Oh, they didn't nest, it failed. That's green again, you can climb in there. So we encourage climbers to check on our website to see where this sort of real-time uh, update on where the nesting is. And it seems to be reasonably, seem reasonably uh, workable. There are occasionally instances when, when it happens, no, people don't, don't read the website, they don't know it's there. But climbers buy into this. So this sort of voluntary self-regulation is I think, a very good way of going. That sort of approach to say, well, just we'll back off for a bit for a certain amount of time. There's plenty of other places to go. If you can get alternatives to go elsewhere, it seems to work. And that gives a good feeling to the other parts of civic society to show that, yeah, responsible people are not mad people climbing about all over the place or cycling about all over the place they actually think about what we're doing so i would certainly go to get sort of uh, endorse that sort of self-regulation sort of trail amnesty type of thing i think it, it can work yeah. um, i'm just going to ask another question on that dave as well for bringing others on this as well i mean i think that um i think the the, ne the nesting birds one is quite a um it's not not I, I, I'm using the wrong word here, but it's quite a kind of distinct. It's quite not not obvious, but it's a kind of like do this isn't it's wrong. Whereas I, th I think trail amnesty and things as well is it, it, it's a it's a spectrum as well, isn't it? I mean, there's some trails that are obviously just a complete bog, and you're going to really ruin it if you go through there, through to a really hardcore purpose built almost road like surface. And, and at which point does that become more? Does at which point does it become unsustainable? At which point are, are we really doing significant damage that it's ruining the place that we're in? And I just wonder, like that—that's an example from Mountain Biking. And I'll maybe come back to that and ask Tommy and Anya their thoughts on on where in that spectrum, if any, that, that that we should be looking to to act as a community or or consider what we do with that as a community. But I just wondered if there is ones that are probably more of a, a spectrum issue and that that you have within mountaineering. Um, there and, and how that's managed or, or how it's it managed even through ethics or communication. Yeah, I think uh, from uh, hill walking to go, when you get into Monroe's and Corbett, if you want to get to the summits, you'll find there's, there's, the topography tends to define the route you take to get to your destination. And there will be bits which become a wee bit boggy. And the more you walk on them, the boggier they get. And the more folk walk around them and you spread it. And that way you can actually impact on the environment quite a bit. Now, you think the mountains are quite robust and uh, sturdy things, they've been there for eons, ages, but actually the processes and the plants that grow on them and the animals that grow on, uh, that work on these plants as well, they're quite, they can be quite fragile. I mean, they live in pretty uh, horrendous conditions a lot of the time, but they're very slow growing and they can, damage to them can take quite some time for them to recover. So yes, how we manage where we walk is an issue and, Footpath repair is quite a big thing. 
I've seen some horrendous footpath repairs in my time. <laughs> They've been really, really insensitively done. And there's others which are absolutely fantastic. And I think uh, the Outdoor Access Trust for Scotland is doing some really good work on uh, trail restoration work. So I think it's not just the, the, the damage and things, there's, there's something in there, but how do we maintain this? It's for the it's environmental protection. And how do we maintain this environment? And finding the money to do it is the hard bit. You can, you can identify where the spots are and you can identify where there's pinch points and say, you need to do something there. Getting the money to do that is quite difficult because to get it from the Rural Development Funding, they've got a formula and it's worked on a path uh, for digging a path, surfacing a path. There's a certain price per uh, linear metre that you can work to. If you're in an upland area, it may just require a bit of drainage, a couple of water bars in there, dig a shuck along the side to drain the water off. It might actually involve some really expensive and difficult stone pitching. So there's not a standard one-size-fits-all price you can uh, put onto upland path repair. So having a bit of flexibility and a source of funding to be able to repair paths, I think, is quite important, as well as trying to sort of avoid it. I mean, you'll not be able to avoid it because that's where people go. It's the desire line. And it's having to, how do you manage the people going through these particular areas? It's a hard bit. So yeah, funding is something that's been going on for quite some time. No solutions yet. Bridget may have some ideas on that one. But uh, I, stay, I keep plugging away for more money for Upland Hill Pass. Yeah, Bridget, you want to, I mean, not not to not to say uh, not to put you on the spot and ask when your money when the money's coming from Nature Scott or, or everything with this as well. But do, do you think? I mean, that that is going to be. I, I guess what would be useful would be to understand a little bit of why funding might be challenging for this kind of thing as well, and, and any work that we might be able to do to help make good arguments towards this. Yeah, I'll um I'll probably pick up. Well, I'll cover a couple of things because um one I think kind of just if I can mention briefly going back to sort of path amnesty type thing and closure thing is that, um, yeah, that might work in certain circumstances um, and resting, um, perhaps something that's more along a kind of more informal route that's um, you've maybe not eroded down too far, but you can, you know, leaving it for a couple of years might, you know, restore the vegetation back or something like that. But what I suspect is, is really the issue is um, once you reach the point of no return where, um, you are going to have to have some sort of intervention to address either you know erosion issues or drainage surfacing grading or whatever um, and that of course leads us on to right how do you do that um, and yeah mountain biking's got a really good history of, of volunteer work and effort um, on trail repair um, and maintenance and so on which is a really great great starting point um, but then you do get to the point where you perhaps do need more capital money to tackle those bigger erosion issues um, and that will often be combined with your know, other user groups so you might, might be linked in with um, mountaineering pressure uh, so hill walking pressure and so on um, yeah being put on the spot yeah i mean we're constantly looking at ways to to pull funding packages together um, to support path improvements um, restoration and development and so on um, and in scotland that comes in many forms um, including through um, agricultural funding, which of course we're in a bit of a flux at the moment as we um, go into Brexit and come out the other side um, and Scotland sets up its next rural development programme and what that might look like. It's a bit down the line, we're looking at post 2024 for the start of new programmes um, and at the moment we're just working through transition arrangements where we might get money to help with some path um, repair work um, and then of course there's all sorts of other um, mechanisms as part of 
of green recovery. Um, you know, um, and I say it's green recovery in its broadest terms for in tackling climate change, um, but also the consequences of being in a in a global pandemic. Um, you know, pretty much all of this this year, um, and the impacts that's had on on people, including their well-being, obviously. Um, so I think there's opportunities there, um, and I guess from you know public sector perspective, we're making the case. And that's why it's important we're at events like this, because it's where we get to hear, you know, the real stories, you know, what's going on, what's important, what are the priorities, um, and that helps inform, you know, my decisions in, in writing you know, advice and, and policy advice and recommendations and so on. So, yeah, keep going with those strong messages and, you know, we will make a difference. Yeah, and I think, Tommy, as well, you, you've been kind of investigating about this through, through down in, in Northumberland. Is that right? Is that something you can expand on? Yeah, we've we've been looking at working with with landowners in the uplands, um, particularly the uplands for the new environmental land management subsidy, um, which is in its pilot stage at the minute, which is DEFRA funded, um, and we're looking at that for the provision of recreation paths and repair. Um, we're also tying that into moving some landers into into higher tier environmental lands management subsidy schemes. So that could be tree planting, that could be peat bog restoration. Um, and what we're doing as a charity is facilitating that with a benefiting kind of volunteer labour. Um, so it doesn't always have to be hard cash. Um, there can be a benefiting kind. Um, and one thing I would like to add is I think I would like to see, um, I think currently the main influence for a lot of mountain bikers comes from brands. Um, so the biggest brands in mountain biking, I would like to see them invest more um, in trail maintenance, trail infrastructure, building a culture, um, because not only is it the right thing to do, I actually think it's good for their business because without trails and without an environment, they don't actually have a business um, if there are no um, paths for us to ride or no trails for us to ride. So I think that's really important. Um, and I guess, do, I mean, we've seen a good example of that earlier on in the session where we looked at sort of sustainable trail models and brought in Santa Cruz with Paydot um, as well. You know, in, in the previous conference, we featured... Uh, Fonny Cook from Specialised as well with the soil searching bit. But do you see more of that? Do you think there is a momentum from the industry to get involved in this and get involved in it? I, I guess also sort of spreading good messages as well as rad riding. Yeah, I think that that is growing. Um, but but one of the things that I'm always aware of is that um, you know there might be 300 people in here, and Pink Mike might get 100,000 visitors a day, and 200,000 people might go in, on Instagram a day. But I actually think a key touch point for a lot of mountain bikers is they'll get their bike out of the box and we never see them again. They're just happy to ride their bike. So it's how do we connect with them at that touch point? And I think that's where the brands can really have an impact, whether that's a cool booklet or a zine or um, something that pushes a culture of responsibility, directs them to their local club. I'd like to see that um, trialed and explored. But I do think there is a, a growing momentum towards advocacy um, from some of the big brands. And like you mentioned, Seb and Fanny and Kotick. Um, and, you know, there are various groups working with brands to, to kind of help facilitate that. That's good. And Andy, in your experience as well, do you, do you think this is something that the industry are becoming more aware of um, and, are, and are more likely to act on? And, you know, ideas like, like Tommy said, straight out of the box, straight into the hand, always got the same message going through it of responsibility and... I think um, I think the industry's kind of gone from a, a situation where it was really good PR, it was really good marketing, 
there's uh, there, there, there's still a touch of that. But, you, you know, you, if you're savvy enough and sometimes you don't really need to be, you can sniff that out. I'd say that um, already we're starting to see this side of the, the industry mature slightly. There, there is genuine commitment, um, not, not just... Um, you know, tokenistic commitment towards trail advocacy uh, globally. Um, I've been around it 30 plus years. I've never seen this level of engagement. I've never known of conversations like the one we're having right now. Um, there's lots and lots to do. Um, the, the, for the sensitive environments you were speaking about earlier, I concerned that the, the demand and pace, the, the appetite to get into the wild is going to be even more so after COVID, we've got the world champs in 2023. Um, I, I think we need to set a bit of a hierarchy, a priority of where, where are the sensitivities and, and really keep pushing and working um, uh, to do collaborative um, work on the, on the trails um, because the technology is, is just so incredible. Some of these more sensitive spots in Scotland just can't, take as much traffic and we, we need other locations to go and ride and enjoy. Um, but I definitely feel, you know, more than ever, everyone's listening, everyone's starting to get on the same page. And I think with the explosion of UVs into the, into the activity, now the time is right for tour operators, the tour industry coaches, guides, all to have a voice here. And Davy as well. Do you do you see this in in, in other mountaineering disciplines as well and, and things as well? As the does the industry get behind sponsor messaging? And it seems to me that some, um, although I think it has grown in mountain biking, but I think there is there are certainly brands in mountaineering that I'm aware of, so, um, from Patagonia to um, Norano and Norway, who, who really take great pride in themselves being seen as kind of ecologically friendly. And I think it's improving in mountain biking, but not through it's there yet. And does that, do you think that makes a difference to the culture and other parts of, of, of mountain sports? I think it does. It's, it creates a sort of, um, a sort of a, a, a society in which you know that your, your kit's going to be ethically sourced, but there's stuff that we can do as well, because not every organisation or every supplier does that sort of a corporate social responsibility side of things. I mean, you just have to look at the, the sushi over wild camping we've had this summer where folk were buying tents for about 30 quid out of, and sort of festival tents and abandoning them and leaving them behind. There's a personal responsibility as well as this corporate responsibility to come in there. So it has to be ethically sourced as well as what you do, what you buy and what you actually do with it. It's a big issue. We're trying, to, we're just starting to deal with that ourselves, looking at what's our impact on climate change. What do we do? In the mountaineering community that actually creates uh, or exacerbates the situation with uh, the global climate change. It's a big issue, it's quite hard to deal with. We're feeling our way through there. We've got a group of uh, members who are an advisory group for us looking at this issue. So it's early days, but I think, yeah, there's a mixture of leading from the front, from the supplier side of things, but there's also trying to foster a sort of uh, an ethos of that personal responsibility and thinking, yeah, well, I'm going to make an impact in here and you try and reduce my impact. I want to leave as little trace as possible. And it's trying to communicate that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, the mindset in there. It's not just a question of, yeah, I'm going to go out and enjoy myself and you know, sort of, uh, test myself and my machine in the environment. I think I'm having an impact in the environment and I need to think about how I'm doing this as well. 
Can I make a sorry to interrupt? Can I can I make a small point before I forget it? Um, the I I think we've got an incredible um, scene and an incredible opportunity. But one thing that's not not very cool, and I never I never really used to give a damn about it. But the the whole respect and responsibility element of the the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, we we've got incredible access, but that message, respect and responsibility. Um, needs to be sexed up, you know. It's it's not just about it's not just about us old timers. Uh, it, it's something that needs to be embedded um, in just about every piece of communication and storytelling around mountain biking. Certainly, where Scotland's concerned, um, and 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 breeding, you know, a generation. Certainly, the Tweed Valley is an incredible bubble uh, for mountain biking. Um, we're seeing kids that already get that. Um, you know, it's not a newbie issue. There's veterans out there that know nothing about respect and responsibility. Um, and and the, the, there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, Tommy, what do you, what we mean, I, I guess, bringing you up as well, you've got a communication agency as well and doing that. And um, how do we do that? And how do we sense that? I think what Davey spoke about as well, that sense of personal responsibility. How do we start to, to get that quite deep within people and people take real pride in that? Well, yeah, I, I think tr traditionally marketing in mountain biking has been very performance-based. So that's racing the best athletes um, and so on, the best tech. I do think there's an opportunity for brands now that we have more people being more vocal um, who are also good riders. We should actually be promoting them and sending their message so it becomes imbued, like Andy says, within our culture. It's not something like we feel like we have to do or it's a chore. It's just something that we do. It becomes the way we behave. And I think that's, that's really important. And, but I, I also think that needs to be led by, um, I hate the, the term influencers, but the people who can be influential in this sphere. Um, because like Andy says, it's not sexy, this conversation. It's, it's not fun. But but I think it's really I think it's really important though that you know we're engaging people on every level, so that actually they can say all right there's my idol, and they're doing it so therefore it's cool, um, and I think I'd like to see more money put into that from the brand side, telling those stories, activating those athletes, and putting some some input into them, and and I also think actually, um, in the same way that we sponsor athletes and teams. Why do we not sponsor advocates to the same level? Why is there not a team of advocates who can go around and do talks and speak to people and go riding with them? I think that could exist as well. Yeah, no, 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 great points. And I guess that the system is a, is an ecosystem, isn't it? I mean, it, it needs all of these things to, to work as well, doesn't it? It needs people at all different levels to influence government to get the funding into the right things. It needs to have influencers coming in to influence in, uh, people's behaviour um, and things as well. And I, I guess kind of thinking about this as well and, and looking at it and I see that there's a lot of chat going through this stream as well. And I'm trying to pick up on it whilst follow this as well. This is definitely stretching my uh, TV hosting ability. Um, but um, I'm just kind of wondering as well, like, you know, we've got good thoughts here. We're looking at kind of creating a culture. And I think part of that creating that culture is... Um, 
starting to have these conversations so that people consider it and bring it into their own practices. But do you think it needs more leadership? Do we have a bigger role to play in, in doing it and, and, and fostering this forward? Um, and as there are also maybe agencies such as Nature Scott, do they have a, a bigger role to play within this as well? Maybe go to you for that one, Bridget. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you'd give a bit of background. I mean, our, our role in terms of the outdoor access code is something we're looking, I mean, we're looking at that at the moment over this winter, um, really in response to um, the increase in freshers in the outdoors over the summer, um, you know, around about, you know, camping issues and, and fires and, you know, various other bits and pieces around some of the hotspot areas. So, you know, there is work going on as to how to get messages out in a better way. And, you know, it's not folk like me that are doing that. It's, you know, people that are, you know, experts in, in comms and, and marketing activity because they they know the latest you know ways to do that and you know Tommy's Tommy's point about you know using influencers that's right in there in social media um, because it's it's a relatively cheap way to get messages out there you can get a big reach um, at, at relatively low cost and you know things have moved on big time since you know we last started you know ran TV ad campaigns for you know the outdoor access code. Um, so the, the ways of doing things are quite different. I think in answer to, yeah, who, who does it? It has to be a combined effort. It absolutely has to be because, you know, we can all influence different audiences in different ways. And, you know, we probably reach quite well the kind of, you know, the middle ground folk that are, you know, receptive to, to messages. But, um, you know, that, you know, younger generation stuff, you know, you know, our kids are looking at, yeah, YouTube stuff constantly, always looking at, um, you know, who the next person is telling them about the latest bit of kit and, you know, the latest, you know, everything. They're, and, you know, brands are right in there um, as, as influencers. has to be a big part of the, um, the sector. So, yeah, combined approach. Um, but, um, yeah, and the other point, I think, about advocates, um, you know, getting out there, tying it in more with, um, you know, maybe with some of the bikeability stuff that, that goes on um, in Scotland, you know, this a lot of good work happening out there already that you could probably tailor perhaps a little bit to focus on, you know, the, you know, the, the stuff that we're talking about, the mountain biking activity. Um, and Davy as well, what kind of role do Mountaineer in Scotland have in, in, in this within kind of your more traditional sectors of mountaineering and climbing and things? What, what, what role do you play in? How does that interact through to a, 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 the culture that's, that's set there? Um, I think an example we could use for that recently is uh, litter in the hills. Um, you walk by and you see banana skins. Oh, sorry, banana skins are biodegradable. It's okay, same as orange peel, but it takes years for them to biodegrade, and that's a requirement. So even though they're, they're organic and biodegradable, they're still, they're still litter. They lie around for quite some time. So we started a campaign uh, called Hashtag Tag It Home, and we create bags and become a member of the Mountaineer in Scotland, as part of your membership pack, you get this packet home bag, your bespoke bag to stick in your rucksack. So you've got it there, picking up, putting your rubbish in there, but also picking up other people's rubbish as well, as long as it's safe, obviously. So you can take other people's rubbish and take it home and recycle it, bin it, wash your bag, take it out again. It's that sort of uh, the attitude. If we don't pick it up, who will? There's no bin collection in the, in the, in the uplands. So we did that as a very soft campaign and using it on social media where people were pictured with their bag and picking up litter. So it wasn't organised litter picks, it was doing it during your normal hill walking, climbing activities. And it kicked off really well. 
it's been surprising a number of people uh, putting their, 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 their photos on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, and it's a word of mouth thing. It's uh, it's showing you this is the acceptable behaviour nowadays, and it's people like you and me that are doing it. It's not coming down from on high. It's people who are out there hill walking are picking up other people's rubbish because they were too ignorant to pick it up themselves. They're taking it home themselves, and they're doing a public service. And it's 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 fostering a whole a change in attitude. It becomes the norm to do this sort of thing. So I think there's a role for the community itself to be able to do it from the ground up and show that it comes and it doesn't have to be expensive a, a simple thing like that I mean, that's just one example but it shows you uh, the reach and the impact that it can have can i ask something graham right. um i'm going to be devil's advocate here um given how much we hear uh, national governmental and various other public organisations say that mountain biking means to this tiny little country of Scotland, um, do we as a sector receive a proportionate uh, amount of financial support? Because um, that, that, that to me, you know, we've, we've got engagement at, at, at so many phenomenal local, regional, national levels, but have we got the cash? Um, because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is quite long term. Um, is that, is that, uh, that a question to me, I guess, as well, isn't it? And it's, 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 I'm not trying to intentionally make you squirm, but it just feels to me that uh, mountain biking as a sector gets an awful lot of good praise. And I, 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 I'll stick my own neck out here. I'll probably never get another bit of Visit Scotland funding. <laughs> but never did anyway. But uh, that, that's beside the point. You know, are we getting enough uh, public financial support for this sector? I don't think so. I think we're um, we're telling our story better, and I'd say, uh, and I think that that helps us say that we're a success. And and I think politicians like to follow successes, so that's there's part of that. I think we we've done well, particularly over the last. Um, I think we had a little hiatus in funding. We did very very well in the early two thousands with the creation of the trail centres and um, and then coming in with access code as well. That that enshrined a lot of things that I guess I didn't even consider when I was kind of out playing on my hills and my bikes. I didn't even know there was access rights there, but that became law that I had that and to do it. And I think we had funding and like Bridget said, there was national TV campaigns at that time as well to promote responsible behaviour um, when the code came in and things as well. And I think, and we had an influx of access officers as well. And at that time as well, we had sort of a lot of people caring for it. And then just over time, I think some of that kind of has dipped down, I think, as well, with some of those general access parts have dipped down. I think in mountain biking, we, we've done well. We, you know, Development Scotland was only set up as a three-year project back in 2010. Um, it was only set up to last for three years, and there'd be a framework to keep that going. We've had to work really hard um, to, to, to keep, you know, just a core of a team going and then worked extremely hard to then get in some some fairly awful funding. Um, apologies to anyone involved in LIDA, um, but it's, it's been really hard work and, you know, we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of Scottish Cycling to do that. But I think that's helped us grow some of the impact that, that we have. And I wasn't, I wasn't aiming at you. Graham. No, I know, I know. I'm just, I, sort of, I guess I'm explaining a bit of 
a bit of where I see it going, Andy. And also, I think as well, I think that where we have is, you know, using an event like 2023 gives us more profile. So it gives us more opportunity to, um, gives us more profile. I think the work that we're doing around the sort of borderlands growth deal into bike parks and innovation centres potentially to happen. The master plan and we're doing in the Highlands, all of that sets ourselves up well for investment into us. As well, so I think I think there's a, a, a number of great things happening. I think what we probably need to do, though, as well, is a lot of the things that are coming through this chat. Is I think we probably do need more industry engagement into some of the issues that we have um, mm -hmm. into things. Um, getting match funding into stuff is very very challenging as well, and it would be great to see the industry step forward um, and look to support more of that. Uh, if I'm honest, because that money is very valuable because it can be used both for revenue, for capital, for whatever the industry likes to do. And we probably don't see enough of that coming through. And also, I think as well, why I hope that this is useful as well, is I hope that the industry and other partners can take it on themselves and go, you know, we'll link in with them, we can take what message they give us, but we're going to sex it up, we're going to change it and make it more appealing because we're used to giving good messages to people that they can digest it and, and do it. And I hope as well, if we can be joining up on those things, we can make that better. Is, does that answer your question a bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I suppose, I, I feel that we... Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to leave that one there, Graham. No, it's fine. Just uh, switching off of TV host mode to, to back to, to my question mode as well. But um, I, I think as well, I think, I mean, it's, I think, um, I think campaigns can be strong as well. I mean, it's certainly the, the, the Tack at Hame one as well is, 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 is really good. We're, we're really good. We're really pleased. Last year, we joined up with Think Winter with Milton in Scotland and other bodies as well. And, and that worked. We, we got really good reach on that. And I think we need to do more of those joint campaigns together into the outdoors and, and I think we've got a, you know Sports Scotland have set us up as a group to do that as well so I think I think there's there's, there's definitely some um, things there that, that, that we can be working on um, and doing um, yeah uh, where am I where are we going now guys uh, where have I gone you've thrown me Andy I've, got, I've lost my question thread apologies you'll never ask me back no 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 I'll always ask you back Andy um, into that as well um, I, I guess what I'll do, Davey, you're gonna you you look like you've got a hand up to rescue me while I paddle away. Um, just as well before I bring you in, um, and just to help me out as my brain is slowly starting to shrink towards the end of the day. Um, I see there's the chat box in here is go is go is going great guns. I'm not following it. If you've got specific questions you want to ask the panelists and things today, can you just pop it on the Q and A as well, folks, and I can pick up on it easier as well. So thanks to delegates in that digital world out there that I can't see. Let me do that. And Davey, thanks for saving me. In you come. Uh, I was just going to change the subject uh, slightly on here. And I was going to ask, um, if you're taking your bike out onto the hills, away from the trails and such like, and you're exploring further into this, uh, the upland area, you'd be relying a bit on technology to do that, your GPS and all that sort of thing. How many do you know of folk can you actually uh, read a map and compass when the, the wind comes in and the mist comes down and you can't find your way back off the hill? Andy, what's your take on that? I'm sorry, David. I was busy. Uh, I was. I was busy sending uh, Graham an apology on chat. 
didn't mean to that. It was fine. It was fine. It just uh, threw my threw my threw my question mojo out on it to switch modes. Oh, well, but, um, sorry, I, I I need to learn better self discipline. It's never been my forty, as you know. All, all the <laughs> no, Tommy, just... what's Tommy? What's your take on that? Since you were listening. Um, yeah, I I do think there is um a significant proportion of people who know how to read a map in mountain biking and can do it. Um, however, I think like any, and this isn't specific to mountain biking, it's the same cut of any society. Technology is so easy now and generally so good that, that we have become a little bit more reliant on it. And, and I live in the Cheviot Hills, which is a complete black spot. Um, so, so we need maps um, and GPS will fail. And we've had major brand GPS fail there. Um, so I, I think it's a really good question because um, uh, I think it's important that we don't get a perception um, that, you know, we're a hassle for mountain rescue, um, which I think is unfair at times, but I still think that perception exists. Um, I don't think we have any more cases or rescues than, than any other outdoor activity, um, but it's just a perception thing. Um, so I think that's, that's something to be aware of as well. That, you know, if you're going out into the wild, take a map. I think I think you're right, Tony. Um, I, I think also it's uh, it's it's raised the expectations. I, I I think the the shift towards the digital technology, the navigational aids, the the equipment, and the expectation that a, a lot of riders are uh, are coming at that they're, they're using trail fort Strava just as I do, um, but they're going to particular iconic trails in Scotland. Um, and that 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 has an inevitable consequence for places like Torridon, which I know was spoken about in an earlier session, particularly um, sensitive um, locations. So the, the the shift towards digital technology and and also the increased expectation that's inevitable people's levels and what they want from the riding experience and and where they can go and the speed and so on. It's having an inevitable consequence, and it's, it's great that we're aware of it, and we're we're, we're conscious that we, we need to bring balance. Um, I've just got a, a, a good question come in from um, Anthony on the, on the chat there, and um, I guess Anthony's just wondering as well is that um, he's saying mountain bikers have been kind of told for, for years they're doing bad things. It's we're kind of a little bit of the naughty boys of the outdoors and boys and girls of the outdoors. Uh, is it, is, does, do you think that that is the case? Do you think that is our perception? And also, does that make it harder for them for any messages to get across as well? Do you think that, I guess, Tommy and Andy again into that one? Please come first, Tommy. Um, uh, yeah, I think that is... Um... I think the problem is engagement and I think there's a perception problem, but, but an old boss used to say, you know, perception is reality. And for a lot of people, their perception of us is what they equate to the reality, even if that's wrong. So, so it's partly our job to try and change that as well. As difficult that is, but I do think because we've um, had this um, perception against us, we probably do have a little bit where we're prepared to dig our heels in now and, you know, almost flip two fingers at times to, to that messaging. Um, and that's a difficult challenge to, to overcome. And I think that's why what we're doing right now, having these discussions is really positive. But I also think we need much more joined up thinking between SNH, between the Environment Agency, between these multi-user groups so that we're actually engaging 
with Mountaineer in Scotland. We're engaging with the BMC so that actually we've got that seat at the table and we can influence um, what, how people perceive us. That's really important that we don't shy away from that. Good. Andy, anything to add to good answer? Oh, it's going to sound incredibly cheesy, but it's it's uh, it's got me and most of our cheeky guides out of all sorts of uh, potential conflict situations. A massive big smile and engage if you if you run into some conflict on the trail. Quite often, there's a conversation to be had. Um, I think it's it's really folly for all user groups, whether it's on horseback or on on foot or on bike to go in there with your mind already made up when a, when a pinch point occurs or a bit of conflict and, and quite often a, a big stupid stupid smile and an engaging hello and uh, is enough to, to, to actually unpick something and uh, if you have enough of those conversations like we do um, we, we, we have almost 300 clients a year well not this year obviously um, it's a lot of conversations and a, a lot of contact with a lot of different land users and that's just our tours and multiply that by all our guides and all the riding days that they have we, we have an amazing opportunity to, to help shape and change views if they need change and also to, to help bring newbies along on the same fantastic journey that we're part of um instead of a top top down just a, a more participative nudge into doing the right thing good um yeah just as, as we move into the last five minutes just looking for just kind of i guess the purpose of this wasn't to have any answers to come forward from today but just wondered if there's anything that, that, that you kind of final points that you've been kind of brewing mulling over that, that you, you'd like to bring forward or just a kind of summation of this as well or, or anything you'd like to, 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 to finish with um, I, I will go to Bridget first if that's okay Yeah it's fine um, I think you know it's been a great great conversation really good um, range of, of topics discussed um, I think the only thing that I'd sort of scribbled down that I thought I sh should mention a bit more about is just the um, the importance of co-design for um, you know developing messaging and the comm stuff. The co-design approach um, is the key, and we've just recently been doing some stuff with Young Scott on um, you know how to tune the the key messages for the outdoor access code, and that's worked really well for us. It just gives a you know a different perspective. And keeps it relevant. So um, co-design will be my my parting shot for you. And um, I think we've got great opportunities to to build on the growth in the sport um, and the activity um, over the coming decades. Another thirty, Andy. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Davy. Yeah, I think my message from from this uh, conversation is just to keep talking. It's been great. There's been some good uh, topics raised. If that um, some been talked all around the house this year as you say there's very few answers coming out but that's a good thing because it means we we we're getting to uh know what it is that we need to discuss and find ways towards it so yeah keep talking let's share uh stuff in each other's platforms move things around a bit like that and uh yeah i'm, I'm all for it hey tommy um yeah i, I think it's it's been, been a great discussion. Um, one of the things that uh, I see somebody's just answered in the, in the Q, asked in the Q and A is, is can we discuss environmentalism? And that was something 
I was going to talk about um, in our role of mitigating climate change and how we can have a positive impact on that. I think we're out of time, but um, I also think that's something that as an industry, we should start to think about. We've seen trails destroyed in California. We've seen trails destroyed in Yorkshire. We've seen trails destroyed in Italy. And, and we're very good at coming together to rebuild them. But actually, I think we, sh we should be looking at it like, actually, what can we do to mitigate the chance of that happening in the first place? And I do think we can have a role to play within that because we're in the outdoors, we're in environments that can sequester a huge amount of carbon, that can support habitats. And, and that's something I would like to engage with as well longer term. Yeah, that, that would be a really useful conversation as well, wouldn't it? How, how do we use some of these spaces that we have in a way that, that benefits recreation as well as the environment as well? I know that that's something we're discussing quite a lot within our, within our team as well at the moment as well, is how can these things be? And I guess back to Bridget's point, how can it be co-designed? It's not just messages that can be co-designed, it's the, the environment as well, isn't it? So it can be co-designed to benefit as many people um, and the ecology and, and the environment as well. But um, Andy, yeah before I start waffling. Right, well, I, I'm going to try and pull a very complicated uh, thing into 20 seconds. I, I still think after 30 odd years that it's still, although it's shifting, there's more women um, getting into the sport, but it's still, relatively speaking, a white middle class male club, uh, for want of a better expression. And uh, we need to embed diversity into this discourse. Um, if we're talking about ethics, it's for everyone. It's got to be for everyone. Um, so diversity, gender, uh, black and minority ethnic people need to be part of the outdoor access conversation, um, especially um, given that COVID's making more of us want to enjoy it. Everybody needs to be part of that perspective. Brilliant. Yeah, completely agree, Andy. Um, completely agree. I think it's came through quite a number of, of, of our different speak, speak, um, sessions throughout throughout today as well, of that as well. And um, I, I think that the added diversity as well is sometimes I, I feel that there's a risk of diversity for diversity's sake rather than actually as talking about the benefits of diversity. And I think there is masses of diversity. I've worked in workplaces where it's been all men and it's been just too much. Like it, it, it makes a difference. If you've got gender balance, it makes a difference. It smooths things over. Things work better to me if, if there is more balance. And I think that's the case with, with a lot of different things and with a lot of areas of diversity as well is that balance actually improves things. So it's not just doing it for... for um, for the sake of it is to do it because it actually makes things better and it makes things, uh, you know, your experiences better and, and, and your your mindset better as well, um, my personal opinion. But I guess this has been a, a really um, a, a fascinating session to be a part of. I've really enjoyed it myself. Um, it's been um, educational, plus it's been um, useful to consider where we can go with this and doing it. And I, I like David says as well, is I, I think this is good to open this up it's good to start it, and I think it'll be good to keep this going. Uh, we'll need to work out how we do that, but I think it's really important that we do. So um, thank you very much for taking the time um, today, everybody, to be a part of this session. Thanks all to the delegates for the chat box that's been um, ringing at the bottom of the screen as well. Hopefully that's helping you, and, and, and yeah, we, we can use this time um, to have voices heard and do that. Um, and I look forward for this broadcast to go out and more people see this as well. So thank you very much for all your, for your time today. Yes, thank you. Thanks.